What's up, everybody? This is Iron Mike Stedman. And as always, I want to thank you for tuning into my show, Dog Whistle Brandon. Today on DWB, I sit down with Diego Rivas, a product manager at Google and an advisor with their legendary program, Google for Startups, which supports thriving, diverse, and inclusive startup communities around the world. I met Diego through Navy veteran Carla Bond, founder of Upskill VR, a tech company that uses virtual reality to train and certify first responders in CPR. Diego is Carla's advisor and has been helping her think through how to position her product for fundraising. I've been helping Carla on the side, and at one point, the information I was giving her conflicted a bit with Diego's advice until I had an epiphany. You see, I've been advising Carla to approach building her company like a small business, whereas Diego is preparing her to be a venture-backable startup. Two different approaches and strategies for growing and scaling a company. But thanks to Diego, I learned that tech companies should build their category and brand around the product, unlike small businesses who build it around their company. Once I figured this out, I was able to connect the dots between Diego's advice and mine. If this sounds confusing, don't worry about it, because we're going to break it down in the following episode, where we talk about positioning for tech products and how to approach growth. All right, Gunny, enough of me talking. Get them ready. Yo, saddle up, lock and load. You're listening to Dog Whistle Branding, brought to you by the team at Ironbound Media and the Lions Pride, where we provide no fluff and high impact brand strategy and business coaching for veteran owned businesses to keep you in the fight and not face down in a rice paddy. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman the godfather of Dog Whistle Branding, founder of Ironbound Media, and business coach at the Lions Pride. Before we jump into the show, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at the link in the show notes, or visit our website, dogwhistlebranding.com, to stay up to date on all things DWB. All right, get out your pen and paper, and get ready to build a Dog Whistle brand. Saddle up, lock and load. Diego, finally, welcome to Dog Whistle, Brandon. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Happy to help. I'm, I'm glad we're finally able to get together in the same room, even virtually, because me and Diego have been uh, advising the same amazing veteran entrepreneur, Carla Barn from Upskill VR. Hopefully, she's going to be on the platform. Uh, and I'm actually featuring her story in my book, Black Veteran Entrepreneur. But I've been giving her advice. Diego's been giving her advice. And then I was like, yo, you should listen to Diego. Right. Because your background is a beast, particularly for our listeners that are building out tech startups. So I think a good place to start is uh, introduce yourself um, to our listeners and then let's dive into, you know, product marketing and user centric design. Cool. Yeah, totally. And, and happy to be here. Happy to help. Uh, and hopefully, you know, we can get into topics that are helpful for the audience. So. Uh, yeah, so I, my training was in engineering when I, you know, started early on and mechanical engineering specifically along the way, I always had this, uh, I would say entrepreneurial framework of thinking about certain challenges and, you know, worked on a variety of different projects that we can get into at some point. Uh, but you know, everything from consumer electronics to initiatives around apps for certain purposes to, you know, a variety of different uh, kind of domains. And so was able to start to like probe on that early on and see what were some of the things that worked better and what were some of the things that were lacking in terms of thinking through these projects. And uh, particularly like, you know, the topic that you mentioned, which is user-centric design and how you make sure that you design 
uh, for the user for a pain point that a user has, not necessarily for driving a technology only. Um, so yeah, so that was early on. Uh, I did graduate school in a domain of engineering, but focused also in product design. And this had to do heavily within the domain of uh, the design thinking world. So if you're not familiar with the design thinking world, you know, it's basically a super helpful framework. You know, it's a ton of references on this that I can send over afterwards, but super helpful framework that uh, enables you to test out a hypothesis that you may have about a user pain point or about, you know, a challenge to solve and how you get to that uh, through an iterative process of testing it with the user and, and prototyping it and, you know, reiterating uh, some and kind of reaffirming some of the findings that you may have. Um, and so that was kind of like, you know, a further exposure into the world of like more concrete entrepreneurial frameworks. Uh, I then left to uh, work at a startup early stage. I was an engineer working in consumer electronics robots for children to teach them about uh, programming and electronics. So totally chat through that. That was a super fascinating uh, project that, you know, to this day is totally, still near and dear to my heart. Um, and then I transitioned over to Google working on hardware uh, as an engineer and eventually transitioned over to product management, uh, working on a mix of hardware and software uh, within the Chromebook division. So it's a little bit uh, accelerated background of where I come from and where I am right now. Now, how did you get to the point where uh, at Google you're advising a lot of startups through their, you know, is it called 5,000 Startups? What is the program that uh, Carl is in yeah. as well as a lot of these other entrepreneurs? Yeah, so Google has a division that's called Google for Startups. And um, I started volunteering with them probably a couple, like two to three years ago, maybe I want to say. I've uh, gone through the process of, of process of advising three startups now, uh, you know, both nationally and internationally and in a variety of different domains. So consumer electronics, uh, enterprise B2B software, et cetera. Um, and now working with Carla, uh, who we both know. So the, their structure at Google for Startups is you know, really intended for you to connect with startups uh, around the world. And they have a global framework. Uh, in this case, I'm working with, with Carla uh, nationally, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a framework that basically has the purpose of connecting Googlers with ventures that may benefit from the knowledge that you have. Um, and that could be industry-specific knowledge, like if you work, for example, in B2B software and then you want to help someone that's building B2B software, or it could be more generic knowledge as to like, you know, maybe it's a very early stage startup that is looking to understand how to, you know, further kind of like scope down or further narrow down their scope or, uh, you know, see if they're on the right strategy path and, you know, kind of uh, going from there. So I would say those are those are the key uh, kind of pieces of that, how, how that all piece together. Diego, I tried to play you at first when, when Carla kept telling me Diego said Diego said I was like, man, who is this Diego? What is he talking about? <laughs> then I was like, oh, <laughs> product management at Google. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like we need to take his advice. So I'll tell you, all right, so, you know, Carl's an entrepreneur, and a lot of veterans in our space are bootstrapping their startups, right? Let's just be honest, right? Only a very small percentage are going to receive venture capital. And for founders of color in particular, just <laughs> a very, very small, tiny percentage. So whenever I'm advising uh, startups, small businesses, et cetera, on brand strategy, you know, my thing is I'm coming from the angle of a bootstrapper. And it's like, okay, how do we think about building a business uh, putting money in the bank account sooner rather than later, 
right? And then scaling up accordingly. So I know one thing in Silicon Valley, it's big about like this product market fit. And for yeah. bootstrappers, I say we need perfect customer fit. So that's the angle yeah. I always start to go with. And I'm like, how do we put a product or service for them? But I think in Silicon Valley, it's a different level of thinking because at the end of the day, you're trying to set up startups for massive market opportunities, right? And that's the framework you're coming from. And in situations like that, you guys are more acceptable of putting off profitability for the sake of the long-term play versus me, I think, with like that kind of reality and that cash mindset. So I think that was where initial tension was coming from in a sense of the advice that I was giving Carla versus the advice that you were giving. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. You know, I think um, uh, there is a, I guess like one framework to look at it is the growth and monetization uh, is certainly a core component that, you know, inevitably you have to think through. The challenge is that if you start with monetization uh, before actually thinking about uh, what is, you know, am I solving this really true core user pain point? Um, do I have the data or do I have the insight to actually back up that this is a pain point? I think you may fall into a kind of loophole where you're optimizing for the wrong things at the beginning and you may end up hitting monetization the right way, but it's not, uh, I think, it, you know, it could potentially go the opposite way. So it could potentially open up a path where, you know, you miss a very core fundamental user need that you needed to solve. So that's to say that I feel like once you create a product that is, you know, vetted and useful for a user um, or a service that is better and useful for the user, the story of monetization, um, and I get the challenges of bootstrapping, so I think we should, you know, certainly chat through it in that scope. But the story of monetization, I think, becomes a lot more fluid, and it becomes a lot more um, like it removes some of the inertia to actually get to that point. Uh, that's that's why I think in many cases we tend to think about solving that kind of user pain point and really identifying and like locking that down. And then eventually you'll get to stages of like, wait, how do we actually make this a sustainable business? If that makes sense. Yeah. So one of my worries though, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this is that false positive, right? So yeah. for anybody that's ran a business, you know, Oh, that sounds like a great idea. Right. Or yeah. yeah, I'll sign up for that free trial or whatever. But the minute you start charging people for stuff, it's a different conversation. Yeah. You know, like before yeah. I spend money on my business, Right. I start looking at the cash flow and I check my bank yep. account every day. And so one of the things I worry about is like, could you potentially be building a product or service for someone on a false positive versus looking at like what the market tells you it's worth by putting money in the bank account? And, you know, a lot of times I think and I, I, I if you can't tell, I'm a little critical of Silicon Valley, mainly because I tried <laughs> to go that route. And they said, Mike ain't happening. And so I had to do it the old school kind of scrappy way. But I got beat up along the way. But I, I, I got a lot of learning. You know, I see the world through boxing. I say business is a contact sport. Right. Yeah. And I just see yeah. so many veteran entrepreneurs wasting time building products and services that no one wants. And they'll be in years yeah. for business. And I'm like, bro, if you can't validate your business model with paying customers, you know, in six months or hell, two yeah. years. And I'm being yeah. gracious on the two-year thing, right? Just being reality. Like, yeah. that might not be a good business model. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you bring up a really good point, which is it's it's very different to offer a product for free than it is to offer it behind some, some form of paywall. Not necessarily paywall per se, but some form of, like, monetization structure. Um, so I think that's certainly worth keeping in mind. Uh, there's a phrase I remember that had come up in one of the podcasts that I had listened to, which is, 
being so good that they can't ignore you and eventually getting to a point where your product becomes so good that it's not a matter of if a user wants to pay for it, but it's more a matter of the core need that you're solving, the core kind of value that you're providing is not necessarily a question of if monetization, you know, should be a blocker or not. It's more like a path for the user to continue using that. And a great example of this is when you look at freemium models, meaning like the premium tier and the free tier of something. This is very common, for example, in subscription models, uh, you know, TV streaming, for example, or, you know, any sort of like, let's say podcast streaming, for example. So I think a uh, an example, or the reason why I'm using that example is because that is a really effective model at proving to the user that you have a value to offer. Let's say, let's use a TV streaming example. You start to, you know, you have three months for free. You have all of these shows that you get really hooked on and you realize that like, in order to continue a show, you actually, to finish watching the show, you actually need to get, you know, you need to pay a subscription and you need to pay it for six more months because the show is still running for six more months. So obviously it's a very simple example and, you know, something that I, I'm sure like uh, we have gone through in some form and, you know, maybe uh, I think with all the different subscription services, we may be okay kind of giving it away. But I just feel like the uh, that lends itself to uh, an analogy of like how you prove, how you ensure that you're providing this value. And then you actually think about like, okay, this customer retention bit is eventually going to come in because the value is so high that it's not a matter of how do I monetize it and are users actually going to go away after I monetize it. When did that strategy start coming? Because I don't remember there always being this like freemium model because it's like, yeah. I just feel like sometimes we overcomplicate business, right? It's like selling widgets, buying and selling, you know? Yeah. And all of a sudden we start introduce these freemium models and I work with young entrepreneurs of color here in Newark and they're building stuff. And for years, I'm just like, bro, just build something and sell it to people, right? Yeah. And it just seems yeah. like across the board, we've been, there's just this massive adoption of these freemium to get, uh, was it users, right? To yeah. lower the cost. Yeah. Is it lower the cost of customer acquisition or basically just get a bunch of free users and then charge them out at the same time? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's like a variety of different innovations that, that have happened in like monetization strategies. Like, you know, the ads model is one, uh, the freemium model is another, and like, you know, having, uh, more premium tiers of services, like multi-tiers of, of the same service. Like an example in gaming, that's also very common is uh, in cloud gaming, you will have tiers of gaming that are free and you may have a kind of like a higher friction experience, which some people may be okay with. And then you have a paid tier, which is higher quality, you know, less wait time and so on. So I feel like a lot of that innovation has come from recognizing that like particularly in software services like it's not a one-size-fits-all and it's more a matter of as you start to discover like how users perceive the value of what you're building there may be different uh, monetization strategies that fit better there and it may not be a you have to pay up front to actually get this but it could be something like you know you have to pay in three months or you have to pay a small subscription fee and so on um so I think it's a it's kind of recognizing that uh, you know that that, that trade off. I would say another example of this, which I personally use at times, is uh, the Aura Ring, or I think Whoop actually also does this. These are you know fitness, wellness, sleep trackers, and they have a hardware price, so you buy a wearable, but they also have a subscription price of the service, and so meaning like 
they started recognizing that it's not just about you buying a wearable, let's say a fitness tracker of some sort, but it's more about like getting some of that data that is useful to the user. And there should be a cost, you know, structure to that because ultimately like you are providing that sustained value to the user. So that's just to say like, you know, this is an example. I think that monetization change came a lot about or surfaced from just recognizing the values provided in different forms. And that kind of informs like how, how it should be monetized. Well, one thing we can agree on, there's so many different ways to skin the cat with business models now. Um, and it yeah. actually is super exciting. And so one of the things I want to do is let's take it back, right? So when a, let's say a veteran entrepreneur comes through one of your programs, Google for startups, and you work with them, what is the yeah. framework that you coach them through as they start to position their, uh, their product? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the, and let's use uh, the, the work that I've been doing with Carla as an example. The first, the first uh, kind of phase that we typically go through is really about recognizing where, where is this startup right now? Um, where is the product right now? What are the short-term and long-term goals? Meaning like, is there already that sort of structure that is, that is defined? If it is not, that's totally fine. Like some cases, you know, startups that come in uh, early on, it's more of we have a concept, we don't know necessarily how we'll get there, and that's fair. Um, in the case of, you know, working with Carla, for example, um, you know, there was a very clear pain point identified. There was a very clear strategy to build towards that. There's some questions around like, how do we make this, you know, a narrative that is compelling? How do we make this a strategy for growth that is, you know, very well structured? So that I would say that is the first phase. It's identifying where is a startup? Um, what are some of the kind of gaps that we see early on? And in many cases, some of those gaps could be in like identifying that why uh, that needs to be solved or identifying that pain point. Once we get past that phase, I think it's, you know, a lot more tactical around, you know, we, we uh, fairly common use frameworks around OKRs, which are objective key results. And that's really about defining a uh, structure of how you're going to build a product or a service, meaning like you have a layer of objectives, which are basically think about it as like your North Star objectives. So they may be a little bit more ambitious, high level, that's totally fine. Then you have a layer of key results or KRs, um, which are more like actionable, tactical things that you need to build. So an example is, let's say your objective is, you know, we want to grow by X percent by the end of the year. Your key results under that objective should be all of the things that you're doing or planning to do to actually get to that objective. So, you know, I'm hiring a sales team. I am building, you know, a new feature set. I am doing X and Y. Um, that is, I think the second phase is a lot more tactical. And then I would say like, you know, in many cases, if startups are a little bit more advanced in the third phase, it could be a lot more about uh, iterating on findings. So this is particularly true when a startup already has a user base and when they're already out there with customers that are being using the product and maybe they, you know, don't see growth or maybe don't, they don't see like uh, growth after there's some monetization strategy. So I think in that case, what we'll think about is, you know, tracking user metrics and understanding like where does the usage fall off and do we see any pain points along you know that user journey that need to be addressed? Do we think that the monetization strategy is the right one? Or, you know, let's take a step back and think about like why is this being imposed right now? Um, so anyways, that, that I would say the I would break it down into those three kind of phases. Now I gotta give Diego credit, right? Because one of the things that he I kinda already knew because I'm big on category design. 
uh, but you made me really lean in the old school positioning as well, was I couldn't figure out, I guess I was having a conversation with Carla, and I was like, why is Diego talking about the category for the product? I was like, we should be productizing, we should be creating a category for the company. And then it hit me. And I was like, in Silicon Valley, you built your business around the tech product, right? And you create the market for that specific or that specific product, right? So when you think of platforms like, obviously they, uh, they like you said, Fitbit. Let's say Fitbit, for example. Mm -hmm. Fitbit mm -hmm. came out and its category was wearables, right? And mm -hmm. that's kind of what they led in. And so you built this whole brand around this product, the need and everything, et cetera. Versus like a small business, you're a company, right? And so yeah. if you're going, so I just want to make clarify, that's why uh, when startups are in Silicon Valley, when they talk about startups and venture capitalists, they're really also talking about products a lot of time. So your yep. priority as the founder is to really create a use case for the product that you're building. Is that safe to say? Yeah, yeah that's, I think that's a fair assessment. I think also like, you know, if you look at it from the angle of the company over the product, I think it's fair to assume that there are scenarios where the company grows and you have multiple products. Um, but the you know other side of that argument is if you're starting with a product, you're intentionally a little bit more focused. So you know you're you may be a, uh, it may feel a little bit like you're almost narrowing down too much, but that's not necessarily a bad thing at the start because you're by focusing so much on something. I think you're again focusing on creating that value, really solving that pain point. And then eventually you may get to a stage where you recognize like opportunities for expansion of that product. Um, you know, use the boxing gym, for example, as, as an analogy, like if you are, you've identified there's a really strong need within a community to actually build this. And you have identified a, you know, model that works really well for training people. And eventually you're like, you know what, I'm actually going to expand this to these other communities where I see the same type of need, the same type of structure. And I think that's why you may see like some of the really successful, like, fitness locations like Barry's and like others that have really expanded globally because they've, they, I'm certain, I don't know the story of them in particular, but I'm certain they started small and then eventually they started recognizing like there is a pattern that I can grow into. And this is not a single product. This is a, an expanded service across a uh, company. Now you're the second person that's really mentioned uh, Simon Sinek start with the why. Like to me, it sounds mm -hmm. so obvious, right? But people are literally like, read yeah. the book, watch the video. Why do you think that's so important when you're talking about designing a product? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I feel like highly recommend that book uh, to anybody that has not read that. And we can chat through other books that I recommend that I found particularly helpful for uh, entrepreneurs at different stages. But I think that one in particular for me resonated a lot because I had been in situations where I have not you know, f followed that framework or thought about it that way. And it may feel like the right framework at the beginning, but I think eventually it comes by it comes back it comes back to bite you because if you approach the problem space or or if you approach tackling a uh, user pain point, starting with how are we going to build this and is it an app or is it a service or you know is it a wearable etc. But you don't take a step back first and almost seems too trivial, but you think about like, why are we building this? Like, have we actually recognized that there was a pain point? Have we actually recognized that like, you know, through observation, let's say like I have, you know, been doing this commute and I realized that like people actually like, you know, do this action repeatedly. And I feel like this is an inefficient action or something that could be improved. 
Second one is, you know, uh, actually thinking through like, how does that actually expand to something that should be solved? Um, or how does that actually translate to a pain point that you need to solve? And I think when you, when you start with that framework, the story becomes not only a lot more kind of vision oriented, like you have a vision of the future that you want to create within that product or service, um, but it also becomes a lot more clear when you pitch it to an investor, it becomes a lot more clear when you're building a product strategy internally for the company, when you're eventually building a monetization strategy. I think that is I, what I have seen personally is I think that tends to resonate a lot um, as you start to build the narrative across, you know, raising money eventually for investors or building a team and hiring. Like ultimately, you're not going to lead the narrative with we're building this because, but we are actually seeing this pain point. We're actually seeing this that needs to be addressed differently. And that is why, you know, we, we started this adventure. We started this uh, product and, and or service. So that is actually one of the things that we've been working on, you know, with Carla quite a bit as well, um, is how do you really, you know, strengthen the, the storytelling component in a good way? You know, storytelling can sometimes seem like you're trying to make too much of a story out of it, but I think the narrative is so important and it all starts with, you know, why are you building what you're building for those users? Now, as a product manager, I'm sure you're aware of, they say, don't spend too much time on the product, right? Like you want to spend time on it, but you also need to get out there and get that user validation and everything that Absolutely. comes with it. And I think what I see amongst a lot of veteran entrepreneurs is we're going too much off assumptions when the real feedback mm -hmm. is available right there. And you can get in the habit of building a product like we talked about before that nobody wants without that mm -hmm. input. Because at the end of the day, I feel like the user is going to really tell you how your product works. They're really going to tell you who it's for. And so how do you advise uh, entrepreneurs to balance that? Like, hey, we need to make a really good product, obviously. Mm. Like, start mm. with the why. But at the same time, we need to be open to what users are actually telling us. Yeah, so I would say it's a really good question. I would say a few things. One is it's always fair to start with an assumption. And an assumption can be based on personal experience, could be based on an observation. Personal experience one is a great example because in many cases, like you may be really passionate and knowledgeable about a specific area. Like let's say personally, I enjoy running and I may be noticing that there are certain things in running that could have a better experience. And so it's fair to start with an assumption. Um, I think that's not necessarily a bad thing, but like you mentioned, I think the next step is how do you validate some of those assumptions? And this is where, you know, being tactical about it really matters. And I'll put a very specific example that, you know, someone told me uh, when I was doing some of the design thinking work in, in grad school, which is, it's not about building what's called an ice cream question, which is you come out and you ask everybody, hey, do you like ice cream? And everybody's like, yeah, okay, great. And then you just go build ice cream. That's not helpful. I think it's more about talking to people, understanding their, their story, understanding their narrative, understanding like, why are they going about a certain journey in a certain way? Um, a great example of this, by the way, is there's a, a story that, you know, uh, I recommend kind of Googling around uh, a milkshake purchase journey, uh, which was observed by a Harvard Business School professor, Clay Chris, Clayton Christensen, uh, who also wrote a really famous book called The Innovator's Dilemma. And he started noticing, you know, kind of the reasoning why people bought milkshakes on the way to work. And he started this experiment of, is it because they're sweet or is it because, you know, they're cold or is it because of the texture, et cetera. 
And so he gets to this like interesting kind of exploration um, through observation primarily of like, why are people buying milkshakes on their way to work early in the morning? Um, and it's really just because they want something to kind of chew on in their commute, you know, because it's kind of like a, a texture that allows you to like for it to extend throughout the commute. So my point is, you know, observation makes a lot of sense. Sometimes you discover a lot of things through observation, non-trivial questions to users as you start to explore some of these, if you have opportunities to do interviews with users and really try to evoke a story in these conversations. So do not, you know, my recommendation is do not ask like a yes or no question. Ask like a, you know, something that evokes a conversation, something that evokes ideally a story from their side. And you'll quickly realize that I think you'll either reaffirm some of the findings or you'll start to learn new things in, in some of the assumptions that you made. Um, and the last bit that I will mention around that is what's, you know, fairly commonly known as an MVP, which is, you know, minimum viable product. I think at many times, it's particularly true in hardware, but also sometimes in software, it's very uh, easy to fall into the trap of we need money to build something or we need an engineer to build something. And we're not just, you know, we're, we're not going to build something until we actually have a solid business to move forward with. And I would say, I think that's fair, but you also can identify like, what is a prototype as simple as it can be that I can use to take to users for them to test out? Um, and so, you know, this could be as basic as let's say you're building an app. There's a ton of uh, kind of tools out there that you can build kind of pseudo apps or uh, not fake, fake apps, but it almost feels like it's a slide deck that you're presenting in the form of an app format and you're pitching it out there to users and like they're actually experiencing it. The other one is, you know, let's say you're building a website. You can use tools like Squarespace or other ones or WordPress, et cetera. The point is that like, I think, building something that is a early prototype, which doesn't have to be refined, doesn't have to be, you know, all cleaned up or anything like that, but it's intended to be a tool to learn. And I think, you know, sometimes we may underestimate the power of actually showing something to a user and actually getting it in front of them and, and seeing what we find. Um, so those are the, the three components that I would mention there. The reason I like the MVP and getting something mm -hmm. in customers' hands is because, let's be honest, a lot of the founders that you're probably working with, too, are like solo founders, or maybe there's two of them. They're just like a really small yeah. team. And as you know, there's this still we're building a business, right? So, yeah. like, yo, if you do get that big enterprise account and you've never sent an invoice before, you don't know how to manage net terms and all that other stuff that goes into it, you don't know how to actually close a client, all that kind of stuff, yeah. right? I feel like when you delay and you spend so much time on product, right? You're not actually learning how to actually build your business. Now, if you have yeah. a venture capitalist come in, save you, you know, invest some money, then you can hire people for that stuff. But those solo founders, that one to two person team, a lot of time that's us. And so that's yeah. why I'm always pressing of like, yo man, let's get some in people's hands. Let's get some money in a bank account. Because the other thing I think that's going to help with is, you know, you talk to a founder and they're like, oh, I need to get my web page up, my landing mm -hmm. page. I need to do all this other mm -hmm. stuff. And I'm like, if you don't know who your perfect customer is, right, your language is going to be all wrong, right? Like, you can tell when people don't know who their perfect customer is because they sound like they got marbles in their mouth. They're like, uh, it's da-da-da, uh, versus saying it with resolution. 30, 40-year-old, yeah. service academy grad, blah, 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 right? And that yeah. way, you understand, okay, what are their reservations? Why are they not buying? Then you go out and you push past and you close the deal. So instead of saying this, you say this now. So you can update your what a landing page and you can update yeah. the copy that you're sending out to your team. So 
I just worry that people spend so much time trying to get the product right. And you're a design, you're an engineer, so you get that. And first-time founders do it too because they fall so in love with their yeah. initial product, right? They're not thinking that like, hey, I'm potentially going to be a venture studio. I might have to launch multiple things until we find out, hey, this was one that there's a strong market demand, people are willing yeah. to spend money on it, and we can go. And so that's one of the lens that I'm constantly coming from as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's a, always a helpful exercise is to look at how uh, mass adoption or massively adopted products out there have evolved in their design or how they've actually been. I think it's fairly easy to fall into the trap of like, oh, Uber has always been Uber or Airbnb has always been Airbnb in the form that it's been. And it's actually not true. They've evolved, you know, significantly along the way in features and designs and iterations and if you are able to pull up like, you know, some of the public data around like, what did they look like in the very early stages? Um, I think it's sometimes it's like pretty enlightening to see like, wow, like this is this is where they came from and this is how much they've transformed themselves. Um, so that should be a data point to like kind of accept the fact that like what you may have, as you mentioned, like that attachment early on of the founder, which I've you know totally seen and experienced. Um, to know this is how it has to look because like, or this is how it has to feel because I know that, you know, I, this is, I have this vision, just being okay with the fact that like, it's, it's an iterative journey and it's a transformative journey and it'll, the product will transform itself and you'll find out new things along the way. And it's not a static point, but it's more of like a, you know, a journey that you go through. One of the things I'm also constantly emphasizing is like, depending on where you are revenue wise, right? If you're still in early days of validating Right. Like you need to focus on like the functional benefit, like this product yeah. or service solves this particular problem for this group of people. Put it in plain English. Don't make people guess what it is you do. But one yeah. of the things that keeps coming up is, you know, the, the lingo from uh, what was the uh, I don't know if I if I asked people what they wanted, they would have wanted a faster mm -hmm. horse or something Henry for it. But I also worry that that's a false positive. Right. Because there's got to be some demand existing previously. Yep. Right. Yep. And now with these shows coming out on damn uh, Hulu, you know, uh, what's the everybody loves <laughs> the super pump and stuff, whatever. You talk to founders yeah. and they're like, but Uber did this, but WeWork did this and all these companies did that. And I'm like, listen, you see them there. Like, I'm curious to know, like, how did you literally close your first 10 customers? Like, how mm -hmm. did you close that first one? Right. Where they're putting money in the bank account. And so I think that, you know, I think our listeners need to do more deep dives on understanding that as well. Because like yeah. you said, Uber had a really tight niche early on. I think it was like a, a black car, right? Yeah. Like yeah. luxury, right. pretty scrappy. And then they expand into these other categories. But like you've got to you've got to get some wins on the board because I feel like that's going to let you truly understand like why people are buying. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's like tying it back to like that evolution of the product, I think, and starting narrow, the other point that I had mentioned, I think that recognizing that some of these ventures, some of these like now massive companies eventually started super scrappy and they started very narrowly focused intentionally. And maybe like their target customer back then is completely different than their target customer right now. So I feel like that's tying it back to that aspect of like starting narrow helps being so focused that you actually are 
you know, it may seem like a your addressable market at the beginning is a little bit smaller, but you're actually just really solving that core pain point that you've identified there. And eventually the expansion may, you know, make it such that your product evolves. But I think that starting focus, you know, ends up helping a lot. Now, how do you think about naming products? What's your framework <laughs> for coming up with a name? I just Google something that sounds like, no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, you know, I think uh, we, we went through this exercise with, with Carla. Um, I, I would say a few things. And, you know, this is always a very personal journey because uh, a founder may have a very uh, particular kind of sentiment or meaning behind the name of a company. Um, I would say like a few things, like generally speaking, think about, you know, aspects around how easy it's going to be to actually pronounce, which seems too trivial, but I think that, you know, matters a lot because otherwise you're communicating this product across the world eventually. And it's just going to seem like everybody has a different perception of how it's actually pronounced or how it actually uh, comes across. I think ensuring that like it's true to the business in some form may make sense. Not necessarily like in some cases it's, you know, uh, not necessarily as relevant, but like an example is Airbnb. Uh, if I recall the story correctly, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but a lot of where that naming name came from is because originally, I think in the very early stages, I think that some of the early customers like were using like air mattresses in the living room. So that's where air bed and breakfast came from. Um, so I think that if there is a narrative behind it, if there's a story, that's super cool. I think, you know, that's certainly something that could strengthen that uh, reasoning to go through that name. Another aspect to think through, um, you know, even if you're early stage, eventually the name may evolve, but internationalization of a name, if you're planning to build a business that is going to be global eventually, uh, just thinking about how is that name going to be perceived and or, you know, pronounced or if it's going to be accessible in other communities and so on. You know, if it's an early stage venture, if the, the focus is purposely national, that's fine. But uh, that may be another factor to consider along the way. That's a million dollar insight for our listeners. I never thought about that, but being intentional about the name you choose regarding the market opportunity that you're going after. So again, like names can mean something super negative in another country. And if you're trying to raise venture capital and all that other stuff, you probably should be aware of that uh, before you go to market. And the reason I think naming is so important that we get right is I see, man, so many of these businesses, I like have no idea what you're doing. Can't even guess what it is that you do, you know? Yeah. And then the other thing is I know how, going back, I know how hard it is to sell and drive revenue, right? So you're creating yeah. awareness through revenue. You know, people are like, oh, I need to get my name out there. Well, go get some customers. That's how you get your name out there. And then the other aspect of it, if you are introducing something new, like a new marketing category, et cetera, you got to fucking lean into it, right? Yeah. Like you got to, like, this is work. I lean into my podcast. I lean into my content, right? You've got to set the left and right lateral limits of that market and explain it to people, educate people and teach people. And I worry that like one, a lot of veteran entrepreneurs will come up with these names and they're not committed to actually educate people on the market itself. Right. Yeah. You're going to spend too much time talking about the company and not enough about like, OK, who is what is this market like that we're building? You know, and yeah. why is this product the perfect solution to address the problem we've identified in the market? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, one without sounding too prescriptive, I think a few few aspects that are helpful to uh, nail down early on. One is the value proposition of the product um, or what you're building. I think, you know, what is that value that you're providing? 
really making sure that there's a crisp uh, narrative there. The mission statement or the vision of the company, I think also are key to, to get right. This is more about maybe much more forward looking, maybe something that is uh, a little bit more higher level, but just making sure that like ultimately your company, your venture is going to stay true to that. And why, why is it different? And don't make it generic that to the point where like any company could use that mission statement, but actually make it more specific to your company. Um, and then I think, you know, I'm sure something that everybody's aware of, but like the elevator pitch uh, exercise is always helpful. You get into an elevator with, you know, an investor, for example, and you have 10 seconds to pitch your idea. How would you actually pitch that 10 to 15 seconds? And I, to me, like making that crisp enough, but also still having that concise value proposition in there. It's incredibly hard and, you know, particularly at the beginning and, and the product evolves and so on, but it's so important, you know, much more important than I would say, like anything else around uh, the, the, the other definition of the product early on, because you're, again, really thinking about like how you're providing that value, what you're solving and what the market is. Yeah, see, I tie that in the branding, right? So mm -hmm. I know certain people yeah. say, oh, you know, logos and all that other stuff. But to really, I'm talking about like, how are people talking about you when you're not in the room? Right. Like, mm -hmm. can you explain concisely what it is you do and who you're for? And you have a brand that differentiates you from the competition. So when your ideal user, perfect customer is getting ready to make a choice. Right. What makes him pick you over this other opportunity out there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I think, you know, that that is also always a, a useful exercise to keep in mind, which is like like you mentioned, like, like how how are people perceiving your business and how do they talk about your business when you're not in the room? Um, how they how do they talk about you when you're not in the room? I think also matters um, as a you know not only as a business person but also as someone who is a leader in a company, as someone who is building a team. Ultimately, like I think the one thing to remember is like companies are also people and they have people and they're formed by people and like. If you end up being someone that is not able to attract the talent through who you are as a leader, that's also going to impact your company because at the end of the day, you can't build a company on your own. So uh, just making sure that, you know, that also is another aspect that uh, founders keep in mind. Now, you've been in this space for quite some time now. Was it eight years? Is it 10 years? How long have you been? Yeah, yeah in, in the, the technology, technology segment, segment, about yeah six years now. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any shift that you're seeing versus how things were done like six years ago versus how founders should be thinking about uh, positioning their products uh, now, you know, particularly with Web 3.0 showing up. Like, you know, they say yeah. every business is a tech enabled business, right? Yeah. You've got to have some form of tech technology component, even brick and mortar, right? Because they're yep. using Grubhub and stuff like that. What other kind of shifts uh, and changes do you think we should be thinking about as we're as we're building out these ventures now? Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a long, this is an open, open question. There's a, a lot of different directions to take it into, but I'll say one thing, actually one, one essay that I'll refer to, which is public, uh, which was published by a very famous investor, Mark Andreessen, who I follow closely. Uh, it's called Software is Eating the World. That is a very helpful framework. It has a lot of really helpful insights to something that you just mentioned, uh, Mike, which is around this uh, sort of transition of software, you know, really making its way across a variety of different products that wasn't necessarily the case before. So, you know, what I would say is, I think the, generally speaking, and we can take this in a variety of different directions, but the ones that come to mind is, 
I think there is a lot um, broader access to rapid technology and software iteration on certain things. So for example, if again, if you want to build like an MVP, I think in the past, maybe you needed to hire very specialized uh, folks, you know, specialized engineers or something like that. I think now there is a an emphasis in more uh, tools that empower uh, a lot of folks that may not have the technical background, but actually are able to build some of these like technology prototypes early on. Uh, a great example of this is you, know, you could extend it all the way from hardware and rapid prototyping to you know more software oriented features around some of the website tools that we spoke about, app tools that we spoke about. So. I think that notion of like more accessible tools for prototyping has been one one trend that I've observed. Um, you know, you spoke about Web Web 3.0. That's certainly you know a domain that uh, is getting a lot of news coverage nowadays. I think it's a fascinating domain. I think it's a domain that still has a lot of unknowns as to you know whether it's Web 2.0 versus Web 3.0 entirely, or whether the future looks a little bit like a mix of the two. Um, so if you know if that's a space that folks are interested in, definitely worth keeping an eye on. Like, what are the true the the lens that I try to approach it with is what are the true uh, technology innovations that Web 3.0 brings, but also how does that open up new problem spaces? And you know, a lot of folks that are very bullish in the space, I think what they say is like if you tie it back to Web 2.0, like a lot of businesses were actually made possible through Web 2.0. And so thinking through this exercise of what does Web 3.0 enable that Web 2.0 blocked before? And so that may open up interesting kind of technological innovations. Um, but yeah, I, I would say like, you know, that notion of tools for prototyping, the notion of like some of these trends and keeping an eye on what are generally called hype curves um, in, in the industry. And a lot of market analysis trends publish these uh, publicly, but you'll see, uh, where certain technologies are in what's called the hype curve, meaning like is something being spoken about, you know, uh, very often is something, you know, making the news is something like in this kind of more trough of, of uh, disillusionment or something that folks didn't think that it was it was going to be big and folks now kind of like lost belief on it. So keeping an eye on some of those kind of technology trends helps to ensure that uh, you are kind of staying up to date to like some of these, like what is a two-year vision, five-year vision, 10-year vision in the technology domain? Um, but irrespective of that, you know, I think a lot of, uh, tying it back to the original point of software aiding the world, a lot of the industries that we historically saw were very separate or split from some of the technology innovations. Um, I think we'll continue to see some of that influence, you know, everything from, faster payment structures to um, just tying it now to like things like retail, for example, faster payment structures, um, you know, uh, stock and assortment and kind of how do you manage your stock and inventory and like doing smarter decisions around that, um, anticipating user decisions in, in certain cases. And this is where the whole world of AI and ML comes in and uh, using some data-driven decisions that make user experiences easier and better a lot of the tools around uh, machine learning and um, artificial intelligence are also open source uh, in many cases. So you're able to reuse some of those. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, at a high level, like I know that, like I mentioned, this can go in a variety of different directions, but I think just keeping, just to recap, like 
keeping an eye on those hype curves and seeing what technology trends you continue to see in those hype curves and, and making sure that like if you're able to keep up to date into some of these technology curves uh, or into these technology trends through podcasts, et cetera, I think that's helpful. Um, recognizing that software will continue to make its way into places where potentially it was not there before. And some of these like pillars around, you know, machine learning, data processing uh, that make some of these experiences a little bit more effective and easier um, and ideally, you know, empower new use cases as well. It's exciting for me because as a small business owner based in Newark, New Jersey, right, the world is open up to me now in terms of clientele. I have clients in Jackson, exactly. Hole, Wyoming. I have clients in California. You know, it's like you get clients all over. And so even for me, I have to make a shift sometime of like, okay, I already have clients in these existing areas. Now there's a market where people are more comfortable doing things remotely like they weren't necessarily, mm. you know, 10 years ago. And so it's yep. like, oh, damn, I'm about to do some targeted outreach, right? Before, yeah. like, maybe I can go to Jackson Hole and get some more clients. I got two clients in Jackson Hole, Wyoming right now. And so I'm thinking yeah. in my mind, like, why don't I work that market a little bit more? The other thing is, even with me with podcast production, right, I need audio engineers. There's all these different kind of roles that might have not existed like they do, you know, uh, 10 years ago remote video strategist wasn't even a term you know like 10 yeah. years ago and so i just want our our listeners to think about like what new problems are getting created you know yeah. in this market we're in now that's leveraging um technology and i read a16z by the way but i haven't nice. read the specific article software east the world but i'm a freaking yeah. reader of future joanne lynn crater economy all that stuff uh, i read nice. that first round review etc so that's nice. great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Go ahead. One, one last bit. Yeah. One last bit I would say, because you just reminded me of this and, you know, of course we, we all felt it, but the, the other thing that I would say in terms of trends is with the digitalization of experiences and virtualization of experiences through COVID, um, keeping, keeping an eye on like, what are things that are sustained after COVID versus what are things that were just kind of like a hype during COVID and now we'll transition back to regular. Um, you know, a, a great example of this is keep in mind of like what's happening with, you know, streaming and Netflix. And if some of these are trends of or indicators of a specific company or if they're indicators of like we saw a really accelerated hype during the pandemic and then some of these may stabilize just, you know, a thought experiment. The other one is like like you mentioned, a lot of the uh, I think what the pandemic opened up is this notion that like in some experiences, you may not necessarily need to be in person. Like remote work is a great example of this. In some experiences, you may actually benefit and have more flexibility if you do things remotely and virtually. Um, so that's another one to kind of just treat as a thought experiment as well. Yeah, I'm gonna play hybrid on it. I definitely wanna go see clients in person, you know, clients yeah. that are worth seeing in person because I feel like that's a competitive advantage for me in a smaller market because a lot of these big tech companies and stuff, they don't have that ability to have that personal relationship. And so that yeah. is a competitive advantage we're able to offer, so might as well take advantage of it. And then the same thing too, the shift in the sense of community, you know, how yeah. like brands now are more communicating beyond just like the old corny sales speak, whatever. Like people wanna yeah. see the founders, people wanna see who they're doing business with. And that's why platforms and stuff like these are great because who knows, I might be having customers three years from now that are engaging this kind of content and going down your funnel and they get a taste of what it's like to work with you and how you think. And so that's really my main reason for this platform, not just driving revenue, but 
document and have a portfolio of our thinking and these conversations and stuff, et cetera, and a history of delivering value uh, to the community I'm most proud of, which is the veteran entrepreneurial community. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Now, one thing you talked about was you said you got a lot of resources for us. So how does a program manager at Google stay at the top of his game, not only for his job, working with, y'all call them fangs now, you know, was it Facebook, uh, Airbnb? I don't, I don't know what the lingo is. You know how these business school people talk. But how are you staying at the top of your game, both on the job and in your advisory work? Yeah, um, I do a lot of, lot of podcasts. So, you know, taking it outside of work, like just generally, how do I stay uh, kind of just this personal notion of continuous development and, and professional development? I do a lot of podcasts across the board. So, you know, I think that's certainly always been one for me. Um, a lot of, you know, what you spoke about A16C, you know, great resource and a lot of the knowledge that they share publicly, I think, you know, is, is pretty incredible in terms of like recognizing tech trends, recognizing ways of thinking about new problems and, and particularly in the technology domain. Uh, Benedict Evans is another good newsletter that I recommend. Um, they have both a free and a paid tier. Um, they also have a new podcast that, that they release on that front. So I think a lot of it is... Uh, Stratasory is actually another good one that, that I read. So I think a lot of it is recognizing like the domains that you're interested in. Um, if it's technology, some of the ones that I mentioned, I think are helpful. Um, but if it's, you know, other ones, I think, you know, personally, I have found that starting with podcasts tends to open up a whole realm of things to actually then explore. There may be book recommendations that surface. There may be, you know, links and show notes that actually take you to like other, you know, kind of resources. So that's the framework that I have followed, uh, I would say, so far. I'm the same way. I remember when Spox came out, special purpose acquisition. I was like, what the hell is a Spock? Typed it in my <laughs> podcast app, listened to some random financial advisor talked about it. 30 minutes later, I was educated. It was like the Matrix, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and there's this, this is a golden age of opportunity and learning. I feel like these, I feel like this is a university within itself, you know, the mm -hmm. ability to have this kind of dialogue. People might be curious about program manager at Google and just advising startups and they come across this podcast and between the the, the publications like Future and uh, First Round and all this different stuff, man, it's just great. And so Diego, Absolutely. man, it's been great chopping it up with you. I've been anxious to get at your heels. Now we've got <laughs> to finally see each other, learn how each other think. And I know one thing that you said was you really are passionate about, you know, helping because uh, you volunteer. You don't get paid to do uh, yeah. volunteering work with these startups. I think this is something yeah. where there's just this, like, I, tr I try to tell people this, that, like, there's something more about the entrepreneur experience beyond the monetary. Like, it's yeah. fun, solving hard problems. Like, in school, when you're working and you're trying to solve a hard problem, it's not necessarily fun. But there's something yeah. about that, like, when you're building a business, building a startup, this can come to something. Like, you can create real impact. And so I asked Diego before we went live, I was like, hey, how can our audience, you know, help you? And he's like, I just want to give feedback and advice and help support other entrepreneurs. So if there's anything I'm missing, Diego, you know, is there anything else we can do to help support you? Yeah, no, I mean, that's the main thing. I'm happy to, thanks for having me. And I'm happy to help. And, you know, hopefully like any of this uh, helps kind of, like I mentioned before we, we went live, uh, reaffirm ways of thinking about things, potentially open up new ideas. I think that's ultimately the goal and like you mentioned just now mike i think ultimately like it it's, it has to be fun and it has to be something that you enjoy and there'll be hard days and there'll be you know days where you want to kind of like throw everything away but like ultimately like just keeping in mind that 
uh, it has, it is fun. And it's something that like remembering why you started is always a helpful kind of, uh, yeah, just, just trade to, to keep in mind. Now, if people want to get a hold of you, where can they follow you at? You got a blog, you got a website I can send people <laughs> to? Um, I don't have a blog actually, but I probably should create one. Um, yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll take that as like an action for myself and maybe I will start one and share it your way. Who knows? Start on Substack or something simple. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good idea. I'll, I'll take that and maybe I'll, I'll uh, share it your way when that comes live. Yeah, so I'm going to nudge Diego before I release the episode to make sure he creates a, a landing page or something I can drive people to. <laughs> but seriously, man, it's been a great having you on. You're in my network now, so I feel like I can text you and reach out to you and stuff. I was like, Carla, can I get him on a podcast so we can talk? And so now we finally have uh, been able to do it. And for all our listeners, make sure you subscribe to the Dog Whistle Brandon newsletter at the link in the show notes. I send out a newsletter every Tuesday morning. So subscribe and uh, continue to listen and engage with our content. So until next week, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. Dog Whistle Branding is brought to you by the team at Ironbound Media, where we provide no-fluff and high-impact brand strategy for veteran-owned businesses. We believe that audio is the future of publishing, and we're committed to leading the movement for the veteran entrepreneurial community. You can learn more by visiting our website, ironboundmedia.com. This series is powered by the Lion's Pride, a professional training and coaching company for badass founders. We serve mission-driven, high-performing small business owners with at-the-ready resources, battle-tested tools, and full-service support. We're proud to support veteran and other badass-owned businesses at every stage of growth. You can learn more and get more at thelionspride.com. We'll